to me. Welcome to the Weekly Review. It is Friday, December 11th, 2015. It has been uh, quite a week for news, as it is every week. Every week when I come in here, it's like, oh, this happened, and then this happened. And let's try to make the, the best of it. And the good the good news is that there is some good news. And there, I think there's a lot of good things that happen, and the media chooses not to talk about it. The media would... Uh, the media in general, because this also is the media, but the mass media, I should say, I should I should clarify that the mass media wants to keep people afraid of one another. It wants to keep people angry at each other, and it wants to keep people tuned in. Because if they get people get tuned in, then they'll watch, and then they'll watch advertisements, and the media will make more money. And that goes for the newspapers, and TV, and all of that. However, there's a lot of good things going on, and there's people responding to what's being done in a positive way, and I think that's really important to focus on. And some of the stories I'll be talking about today are going to go into that specifically, just about people speaking up, and the majority of people want peace. Absolutely. However, the way some people would spin it is that uh, 
there's a lot of danger and there's a lot of anger out there. And there's certainly a lot of anger out there. However, uh, the majority of people would rather uh, live in safety and in peace. So that's what the, the theme of the show will be. And we'll see what happens at the end because there's always a story or stories which will either enrage me or get me to the point where I just want to yell and scream. And that very well may happen, although I've chosen some stories today that definitely talk about what's going on. However, with a view of there are people speaking out against the, the negative things and also just to kind of clarify why things are the way they are and the powers that be wanting to pour gasoline in the fire. And there'll be a story coming up about uh, Les Moonves, who's a CEO of a uh, CBS and uh, he he really likes Donald Trump, and anyone who can you know supports uh, like a, a racist uh, maniac uh, who's been inciting violence, I think that's pretty disgusting. However, when you have someone in that position of power who really is you know pouring gasoline onto the fire, they need to be called out, and we need to call these these people out on it because the more people who give these people attention, uh, the worse things get because there's a lot of people following that, and there's a lot of people. I think everyone. I think it's safe to say most people in the world are angry. There's probably babies out there who are angry. There's a lot of things to be angry about. And it's what we do with that anger that will really, will really change things and how we, who we choose to um, hold accountable for, for the messes that we're in. And I think it's a lot of us end up fighting one another, especially in communities. And if we could somehow come together instead of fighting one another, uh, that would be a great thing. So there's been a lot of Islamophobic attacks uh, here in the States and also abroad, and that's pretty disgusting. There have been some here in the Bay Area. Uh, There's been a lot in Irving, Texas, which is where there's the kid who, he built a clock, and then the school officials freaked out, and they thought it was a bomb, even though it wasn't. And so folks have been uh, carrying guns like outside of mosques, and there have been counter-protests, thankfully. Um, But this has just been going on. And it's a lot. There's also been reports that in San Bernardino that the shooters were all uh, tall white men. However, the way the media was spinning it, it was saying that they weren't. And so I think one needs to be very careful with who we get the news from and what we believe. And also just to, to not trust the powers that be because people stand to profit off war. People stand to profit off weapons manufacturers and, keep, as I said before, keeping us afraid of one another. So one should be very skeptical when we hear news, who we hear it from, and what they have to gain from it. And uh, I believe I'm a, I like to believe I'm a champion of of truth. And uh, my own goal is just uh, to perhaps speak for those who don't have the opportunity for their voices to be heard. And uh, I don't stand to, to profit off any of this just to live in a world where people treat each other respectfully that that's good enough for me i'm not looking for not looking to make any money from any of this and there are folks who are in the business to to profit off keeping people afraid of one another and it's their livelihood and i think that's disgusting so i think it's a, a good chance to to start off with the news and this comes from um, some folks i know who are involved in there in this uh there's a group out of new york and uh so it's uh, the Jewish uh, Voice for Peace, and they staged a rally, which some folks might not have heard about. And I think it's really important just to, to let folks know that there are folks uh, standing up and standing in solidarity with each other. And that's the majority of people, I would say. I would hope. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I, I, w- I would hope that uh, folks uh, would stand up for one another 
And even if your own group isn't being oppressed, it's important to stand up for others. And that will be a theme of the show today as well. So this comes from WBAI. And uh, the title is, uh, New York Jews Condemn Islamophobia and Racism. New York Jews are speaking out against Islamophobia and racism. We will not be silenced about anti-Muslim and racist hate speech and hate crimes. Members of Jewish Voice for Peace and Jews Say No gathered under the umbrella of Jews Against Islamophobia. They stood at Rockefeller Center Sunday night in the shape of a menorah with nine signs uh, representing each of the Hanukkah candles, each symbolizing an injustice. They rekindled the commitment to speak out against all forms of hate speech and violence directed at the Muslim community or those perceived to be Muslim. And I'm going to play uh, a segment here uh, that will uh, cover more of this story. On the first night of Hanukkah, on Sunday night, Jews Against Islamophobia and Racism, New York Jews for Peace, Jews Say No, and other peace groups came out to denounce anti-Muslim and racist hate speech and hate crimes. Dorothy Zellner is spokesperson with Jews Against Islamophobia. The main purpose of being here is for Jews to stand up against Islamophobia especially what is going on now, especially with even talks of registering people, with uh, surveilling everybody, with supervising the, the mosques. It is outrageous, and if anybody should know better, we should. It affects us personally, it affects us politically. We see the signs, we see the hysteria rising. We know there's only one end to this hysteria, and it's a bad end. So we have to stand up. You just know from history, you have to stand up. New York Jews stood at Rockefeller Center in the shape of a menorah with nine signs symbolizing each of the Hanukkah candles, each an injustice and commitment to stand up for the dignity for all people. We fight anti-Muslim profiling and racial profiling in all its forms. We call for an end to racist policing. Jane Hirschman is with Jews Say No. There's so, so much structural racism right now in this country, particularly, and all over the world. And so we felt it's very important that we rekindle our hope for justice. And for us, when we light the candles over Hanukkah, we really want to say that we're really, as Jews, against Islamophobia, we're against the racism that's, that's happening. It's been absolutely horrible what's happening in the Muslim community. People are being killed, people are being you know, harassed, children going to school, mosques are being you know, emptied out and, and attacked. People and are afraid. Yeah, and, and we, we need to have the refugees from Syria welcomed all over the world and welcomed in this country, even though the Republican governors don't want that. And so we as Jews on, on the, during this holiday are standing up and saying no more. 
Islamophobia is used by the government to distract attention to what the government is doing to minorities in this country, according to Nick Abramson with Jew Say No. The public uses it, Republican candidates use it, lots and lots of people use it. They focus on the other as opposed to what's really happening, what we're doing all around the world. We're causing this, we're bombing lots of countries, we're creating jihadists wherever we are, and we're blaming it on Muslims in this country. That's why we're here today. With New York as the lead, each evening of Hanukkah, participants in 14 other cities across the U.S. will stand in public squares to pledge their commitments to the fight against Islamophobia and racism. On the last night of Hanukkah, New York Jews will come together once again. You can find out more by going to Jewish Voices for Peace. It's at jvp.org. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Okay, so thought that was important to share. And also there's another story which, uh, looking back, I'd like to have read first. Uh, however, we're gonna read it now. And this goes to, back to the media and how when there are peaceful demonstrations happening, the media is not really there to cover it. Uh, one needs to find it or hear about it through friends. And that's kind of how these things, a lot of these things happen. It's through word of mouth. And if you're not tuned into these channels or if your friends who are not directly involved in the actions, one might not hear about it. So this actually comes from the Mirror uh, UK, which is kind of like a gossipy newspaper, kind of a tabloid. However, they, they have this, which I think is really um, important. And uh, it's hundreds of Muslims marching against terrorism in London, ignored by British media. And this came out on December 9th. Um, the organizers of the annual procession said not one single mainstream media outlet covered it because it was not juicy enough. Uh, hundreds of Muslims marched through central London at the weekend to call for peace and unity. Yet the organizers of the annual procession said not one single mainstream media outlet covered it because it was not juicy enough. Men, women, and children were pictured and filmed waving brightly colored banners during the UK Arberdeen Arbidin procession on Sunday. It is organized every year by the Husani Islamic Trust UK, and according to their website, it is the largest annually organized Islamic event in Europe. The march aims to promote the teaching of Im Imam Hussein, a grandson of the Prophet Muhammad they revere as a freedom fighter for standing up against dictators trying to deny citizens their rights. And on this uh, page here on mirror.uk, they have video footage and photos of the event. And uh, it goes on to say, uh, on its website, organizers wrote, they aimed for a peaceful and successful procession and to cement a bond of unity and friendship between people of all ages and cultures under the banner of love for the ho uh, for the holy household. Muhammad El Sh uh, Shar Sharifi, a part-time activist and regular volunteer at the Husseini Trust, told uh, Unilad, we can still apply the same principles today when we are terrorized by the likes of ISIS. The message applies now more than ever to current issues. We're trying to undo people's misconceptions about Islam. This is a multi-faith event, and we're trying to promote universal human values. Attendance at the march, which starts at, at Marble Arch and heads down Park Lane, has increased steadily year on year. But its organizers said the march was not covered because the media is reluctant to give a platform to moderate Muslims. It's never covered because it's not juicy, said Mohammed. If a Muslim does something juicy, it goes viral. It's front page news. The mainstream media is reluctant to give a platform to moderate Muslims. 
Mohammed is also involved in the hashtag no to ISIS official Facebook page, which has gathered over 17,000 likes since its extremist terror group first came into being. Uh, since the extremist terror group first came into being. He said, I have never met anyone who is pro-ISIS. 99% of Muslims just want to lead peaceful lives, you know, have a coffee with friends. This is the message we want to get out there. So, again, uh, these are these stories that it's one has to kind of dig in order to find or to be connected with certain people in order to find. And they're not... The, it's instead, a lot of the times we get these... Uh, we get these stories about being afraid of one another and that's really problematic and one needs to, to question that. So I'm going to play some music and then we'll be back with some more stories. I uh, got a lot of stories today. And as I mentioned before, they're going to be on the positive side of things, uh, which is good and surprising. So here is going to be a, a cover I heard just yesterday. I really dug it. I like the original. I like the cover too. It's Dancing in the Dark and this is by Ruth Moody. Sitting around here crying over a broken 
welcome back. Again, that was Ruth Moody with cover of Dancing in the Dark. I think it's better than the original. I think that's fair to say. And fun fact about the original, uh, Springsteen was working on the Born in the USA album, and they're like, oh, we need another song. And he just kind of wrote that, and they they put it together uh, very quickly. And then they were not expecting it to be a hit, and then there it came. So open up the show with Edwin Starr with War. What is it good for? Absolutely. Well, it's just called War, but then in parentheses, what is it good for? And of course, the answer is absolutely nothing. Uh, some folks would argue that it helps people make money. Uh, that's still absolutely nothing in my book. So moving forward on the show, we talk about police brutality quite a bit, and that's still a huge epidemic here in the country and abroad. And uh, recently, a friend of mine in New York uh, had to go to the bathroom. There were no bathrooms around, and he ended up peeing on a tree. And he was confronted by six cops, six cops watching him pee, which is pretty ridiculous and quite frightening when you think about it. And uh, again, this is uh, thankfully nothing. Uh, he wasn't arrested. Uh, it's just the, these. It's like intimidation tactics, certainly, and that's it's pretty disgusting what happens when uh, people in positions of power end up abusing their authority and end up scaring people and using it for. They're supposed to serve and protect, and of course, the question that a lot of us ask is, who are you serving and who are you protecting? Because a lot of the time, they're the ones causing the terror. I think that's very safe to say. And just here in San Francisco a few weeks ago, a person by the name of Mario Woods was executed by the police, and there's video footage of it, and Greg Sir, the police chief, was saying that, oh, the, he came at the police, he was carrying a knife, and uh, a lot of folks disagree with, with that assessment. And uh, they are asking for uh, Greg Sir to to step down. And when you see, you know, at least six, there are more more than that uh, cops there with one person who uh, folks were saying are, is, is was mentally unstable. Uh, there are other ways to handle that, and I think a lot of this also comes down to the fact that the police are kind of called in to handle people like that instead of de-escalating it. Um, what you know, what do you do? The idea should be that if there were, especially since homelessness and poverty is criminalized here. When you call in folks who are trained violently to react, there's not going to be a good outcome. So I think perhaps the one of these solutions aside from demilitarizing the police would be to have other folks uh, intercept in certain situations um, instead of having the police go in and maybe have folks go in who have uh, training uh, with dealing with men- folks with you know mental health issues. So there are folks who have been killed by police. And uh, funny enough, it's not funny at all. I was being very sarcastic, which you can't quite hear. Uh, they, they don't like to, and by they, that's a very broad generalization, but there's there's not folks keeping track of it, surprisingly enough. So uh, The Guardian, which is a, a, a newspaper uh, that I, I trust, uh, started a, uh, a project called The Counted, and that's c- keeping track of people who are, have been killed uh, in the U.S. by police. And you can access this on the Guardian's website. Uh, it's guardian.com. And if you type in The Counted, you will find it there. It's also on the uh, Weekly Review page at facebook.com slash weeklyrev. And I'm going to read a little bit about this project. And I, I recommend folks uh, check it out because they have you know case by case of people um, who have been killed and details about their murder. And you'll see it's like really just um, a kind of across the spectrum Although there certainly are patterns, uh, if you look at the patterns of the folks that they have killed, a lot of uh, a lot of people of color. <sighs> so 
I'm going to read a little bit about the project. And it's uh, starting here. What is The Counted? The Counted is a project by The Guardian and you working to count the number of people killed by police and other law enforcement agencies in the United States throughout 2015 to monitor their demographics and to tell the stories of how they died. The database will combine Guardian reporting with verified crowdsourced information to build a more comprehensive record of such fatalities. The Counted is the most thorough public accounting for deadly use of force in the U.S., but it will operate as an imperfect work in progress and will be updated by Guardian reporters and interactive journalists as frequently and as promptly as possible. Contributions of any information that may improve the quality of our data will be greatly welcomed as we work from a dearth of available information toward better accountability. Please contact us to pass on tips, links, and multimedia, as well as new information on existing cases already recorded. It is reported by John Swain, Oliver uh, Laughland, and and uh, I am looks like uh, Iamils uh, Larty. It is designed and produced by Keenan Davis, Rich Harris, uh, Nadia Popovich, and Kenton Powell. Why is this necessary? It's necessary because the U.S. government has no comprehensive record of the number of people killed by law enforcement. This lack of basic data has been glaring amid the protests, riots, and worldwide debate set in motion by the fatal police shooting of Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old in Ferguson, Missouri, on August in August 2014. Before stepping down as U.S. Attorney General earlier this year, Eric Holder described the prevailing situation on data collection as unacceptable. The Guardian agrees with those analysts, campaign groups, activists, and authorities who argue that such accounting is a prerequisite for an informed public discussion about the use of force by police. How does the U.S. government count killings by police now? The FBI runs a voluntary program through which law enforcement agencies may or may not choose to submit their annual count of justifiable homicides, which it defines as the killing of a felon in the line of duty. This system is arguably less valuable than having no system at all. Uh, Fluctuations in the number of agencies choosing to report figures plus faulty reporting by agencies that do report have resulted in partially informed news coverage pointing misleadingly to trends that may or may not exist. Between 2005 and 2012, just 1,100 police departments, a fraction of America's 18,000 police agencies, reported a justifiable homicide to the FBI. The FBI system counted 461 justifiable homicides by law enforcement in 2013, the latest year for which data is available. Crowdsourced counts found almost 300 additional fatalities during that year. The counted, upon its launch in June on June 1st, 2015, had already found close to that number of killings in just the first five months of this year. How does the Guardian count police fatalities? So far, we count with traditional reporting on police reports and witness statements by monitoring regional news outlets, research groups, and open source reporting projects such as the website Fatal Encounters and Killed by Police. But our intention is to progress to a verified crowdsource system. We want you to inform us as soon as possible if you witness a killing by law enforcement officers or learn of one that has taken place. We want to hear from you if you have further information about a case already included in the counted. Uh, What should I do if I have more information on a death that has already been recorded or find an error? 
They say, we welcome all contributions of information that may improve the quality of our data. The Counted is a comprehensive and ongoing process of verification as we continue to work from an inaccurate standard toward a more perfect standard. Please pass on your information as soon as possible. And uh, they have links here to email or to, um, they have a confidential public PGB, PGP key, and you can send them anonymously, anonymously through a secure drop system. They have a Facebook community, and they're on Twitter at, uh, at The Counted. Uh, the Guardian uh, has started a special Facebook community for The Counted, where you can follow the progress of the project. It's designed to be an open space where people who have information that may help inform our reporting can share it with Guardian journalists. We will be using the Counted on Facebook to share details from our own reporting and from other news outlets on police killings to discuss the issues involved and to contact people involved with or connected to incidents. What is included in the Counted? Any, any deaths arising directly from encounters with law enforcement. This will inevitably include, but will likely not be limited to, people who were shot, tasered, or struck by police, vehicles, as well as those who died in police custody. What is not included in the counted? Uh, Self-inflicted deaths during encounters with law enforcement. For instance, a person who died by crashing his or her vehicle into an oncoming car while fleeing from police at high speed is not regarded by the Guardian's database to have been killed by law enforcement. The database does not include suicides or self-inflicted deaths, including drug overdoses in police custody or detention facilities. Other crowdsourced counts do include some such deaths. In mass shootout incidents, like the one in Waco, Texas, where police have failed to identify those who were killed by law enforcement or those killed by civilian gunfire, the, gun the Guardian has been unable to log individuals in the database. We will make every effort to include this information when more details are provided. At present, the Guardian is collecting data on those killed by police, specifically in 2015. And, okay, another, another section here. How does the Guardian define armed and unarmed? This information is difficult to verify because often the only information available comes directly from law enforcement officials, which is a huge problem. In some cases, friends and relatives of people killed will dispute the, uh, this official account. For the counted, we use the term armed in quotation marks to express the nature of the threat perceived by law enforcement. This means, for example, that vehicle, also in quotation marks, will appear under the category of armed if the person was trying to use it as a weapon. Similarly, a person who is found to have had a weapon in his or her possession that he or she did not attempt to use, or which is discovered only after that person has been killed, would be categorized here as unarmed. Freddie Gray, who was found to have a knife in his pocket after being arrested by police in Baltimore in April, would be one such example. In cases where multiple... Uh, multiple witnesses offered a credible alternative story to the official account of whether a person was armed. We have labeled the case disputed, disputed uh, pending the conclusions of investigations. The category other contains any item other than a firearm, knife, or vehicle which police have described as a threat. This includes non-powder projectile weapons such as BB guns and airsoft rifles, as well as machetes, swords, and blunt instruments. And finally, how has the Guardian determined the race slash ethnicity of people killed? 
in order to provide a resource that can help contribute to ongoing national conversations about race and policing, The Guardian has made every effort to find and express a race ethnicity for all individuals represented in the database. This information has been obtained from all available sources, including police and coroner's reports, voter registration data, witness testimony, court records, uh, and photographs. Uh, these will occasionally prove inaccurate. If you know of more accurate information, please contact us as soon as possible. So again, you can find this at theguardian.com. I'm going to play some music and then be back with some more news. So um, I'm going to play a song, one of my favorites. Uh, this is uh, Tracy Chapman, and this is a live version of Telling Stories.
And welcome back to the weekly review. That was Tracy Chapman, of course, with uh, Telling Stories, one of my favorites. And uh, we'll be joined by uh, Oslo Ors momentarily. Um, we'll go through like one more story first and then talk about what's going on in uh, one thing that's happening in, in Saudi Arabia, which I thought was uh, worth uh, mentioning. So we'll be bringing that story up uh, in just a moment here. So again, thanks everyone for listening to the weekly review. And you listen to Mutiny Radio. There are shows here. Uh, every day of the week, there's comedy, there's music, uh, there's Alta California, which talks about medical cannabis, one of my favorite things in the world, and a lot of a lot of good things happening here. Uh, another another brief story I'll just mention first is that the uh, one of the founders of the North Face, uh, Douglas Tompkins, uh, died in a in a kayak accident, and he was pretty cool because he invested in la- protection of land in South America. And I think that's pretty incredible. And it'd be nice if other folks in positions of power or people with, uh, with money were to do that the same as well. And he angered a lot of people, a lot of right-wing politicians and people in Chile by uh, wanting to preserve the land. So just mentioning his name, his name again, uh, Douglas Tompkins. You can do some research on him if you feel like reading more about him. So I thought we'd mention that as well. So I'll be doing one more story, and then we'll be starting the interview a little bit early today, which is cool. And this comes uh, from the Christian Science Monitor, and it's uh, Saudi women face off against men for the first time in elections. And this comes from uh, December 9th, and this was written by uh, Aya... And this is from the Associated Press. And uh, outside the Saudi capital in one of the country's most conservative provinces, Jawara al-Wabli is making history. She's running in this weekend's elections. Saturday's vote for local council seat seats marks two milestones for Saudi women. Not only can they run in government election for the first time, it is the first time they are permitted to vote at all. 
The municipal councils are the only government body in which Saudi citizens can elect representatives, so the vote is widely seen as a small but significant opening for women to play a more equal role in Saudi society. Still, women face challenges on the campaign trail. Because of Saudi Arabia's strict policy of segregation of the sexes, they cannot address male voters directly and have to speak from behind a partition or have male relatives speak for them. In an effort to create a more level playing field, the General Election Committee banned both male and female candidates from showing their faces in promotional flyers, billboards, or in social media. They're also not allowed to appear on television. Uh, this suits Al Wabli, a 52-year-old community activist and Ministry of Education employee. Like all women in Saudi Arabia, she wears a loose flowing black robe called an abaya. She also covers her face and hair under a veil called a nijab, uh, niqab, when in public. When she meets with female voters, she talks to them at the hotel conference hall she's rented in Briade, 220 miles, 350 kilometers northwest of Riyadh. Uh, Riyadh, but when she makes her pitch to male voters this week, she won't be doing talking. Her two sons, both in their mid-twenties, mid her husband and her brothers will address the male crowd, and she won't be present. With around 5,000 men uh, registered to vote in her district, compared to the 620 registered female voters, Al Wabli says she can't afford to rely solely on internet campaigning through Twitter and Facebook to reach men. I want to be part of the development of my city, she told the Associated Press. I want to be a positive force on the ground in my community. While the councils do not have legislative powers, they do oversee a range of community issues, such as budgets for maintaining and improving public facilities like parks, roads, and utilities. All major decision-making powers rest solely in the hands of King Salman and the, the all-male cabinet of ministers. The first local council election was held in 2005 and the second in 2011, with only men taking part. This time around, state-affiliated media report there are 979 female candidates and 5,938 5, male candidates vying for seats. About 130,000 women have registered to vote versus 1.35 million male voters. Up for grabs are around 2,100 council seats. An additional 1,050 seats are appointed with approval from the king. While there is no quota for women, the king may use his powers to ensure at least some women get on to the councils. While calling the vote a step forward for women, Rathna Bigham of Human Rights Watch noted that because male candidates cannot directly address women, they could easily disregard the female vote because it is proportionally so much smaller. At the high cost of running, a visible campaign has proven prohibitive for some female candidates, she said. At least 31 dropped out because it was too expensive. At his campaign headquarters in Saudi Arabia's second largest city of Jeddah, Rassam Akhdar said he allocated a night specifically to reach out to the female electorate, 
with female staff lined up to explain his platform. But no women showed up, and none have passed by his office to inquire about his campaign, so he ended up allocating the entire space to his male constituency who come every night to hear and meet him. It would be, I would be happy to have a woman's vote. This is a gain for me, said the 47-year-old businessman who won a seat in the past two elections and spent $106,000 on his latest campaign. Despite vast differences between Saudi Arabia's cultural sensitivities and the bombast often associated with campaigns in the West, criticism of women's participation has largely been muted, though one prominent cleric warned against this being a Western-style election. Uh, Sheikh Sheikh, uh, Abdelrahman al-Barak admonished his more than 161,000 followers on Twitter that the vote is not uh, religiously permissible if it westernizes the land of the two holy mosques, a reference to the holy sites in Mecca and Medina, and when it allows for the mixing of men and women. The decision to allow women to take part is seen as part of the late King Abdullah's legacy. Before he died in January, the king appointed 30 women to the country's top advisory Shura Council. Women were also given licenses to practice law, and labor rules were changed to allow women to work as sales clerks in lingerie and women's clothing stores. The government also began issuing identification cards for women. In the Saudi capital, uh, Riyadh, 40-year-old candidate uh, Rada, Rhonda Baraja said her number one supporter has been her father. He is very keen about education and the idea that women ought to rely on themselves. My brothers are supportive too, said Baraja, a healthcare professional. Still, when she presented her campaign platform to a group of men this week, she did not stand in front of them. In line with election rules, she was not. She was out of view behind a partition. She used a projector and a microphone to discuss her ideas, while a camera feed allowed her t- to see those in attendance. For Saudi women and men, uh, this kind of uh, interaction is not unusual. The kingdom distinguishes itself as an Islamic state that upholds one of the strictest policies of segregation of the sexes in the world enforced by the kingdom's morality police. Though men and women work alongside each other in places such as banks and hospitals, unmarried men and women are prohibited from socially mixing in both public and private. At female college campuses, male lecturers often communicate via a one-way camera feed that allows students to see the professor. At restaurants, women have family-only entrances to separate them from single men. Women are barred from driving and are governed by guardianship laws that require them to have the permission of male relatives in order to marry, obtain a passport, travel abroad, or access higher education. Many private hospitals require such permission for women to undergo medical procedures. Marina Ottaway, a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, said this weekend's elections will not represent a turning point for the status of women. They are simply a very small step in a very long process of change 
for women and for citizens in general, she said, adding that it's too soon to tell whether this is the first in a series of steps or whether things or whether change stops here. Still, Baraja says the election is a chance for women uh, for women to leave a mark on their communities. In her district, 23 men and 23 women are vying for two seats on the council. She says there are around 9,600 registered male voters and a little more than 300 registered female voters. The competition is big and the campaigning took a lot of effort and time, but in general, what is making me enjoy each step I take is that I feel like I have the skills and the ideas to contribute to my community, she said. When I am in the street and I see the roads are not paved well and there are potholes and the lack of cleanliness in some areas, we can make it better and more beautiful with simple ideas that do not co that do not cost a lot she said <sighs> so huh. with that we're going to play one more song and then we'll be back with our our guest Osla
And welcome back to the weekly review. And we're joined by our guest, Oslo Ors. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so exciting to be here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for inviting. Great. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about uh, your time growing up. Oh, lovely, lovely years. I grew up in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, but uh, there was a period of time where uh, we traveled to south, to Adana, and then uh, the middle of Turkey, Kütahya, and then eventually I ended up in Istanbul back with my grandparents again. And um, it was very lovely. Um, there were no playtime schedules. <laughs> and as a kid, you would just go out and play on the street until you're hungry. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or it gets gets dark and then you go back home parents usually don't know who your friends are yes it's just very free that sounds kind of like the opposite of what's happening now with like a helicopter or the, the idea of uh you know parenting where like kids are not uh parents have been reprimanded for like letting their kids out just to explore which happens here nowadays yeah, it's interesting how different it is i think um there is something about being able to be free by yourself yes it, it made me like a feel like a little person oh it's just i'm out and i'm responsible on my security or my relationships with people outside of my house i never thought about it until i moved here and so how um different it is yeah yeah. Um, so I haven't. I personally haven't really explored the the Middle East too much, mm -hmm. and I'm just very curious. Like, there's what I hear from either the news or from folks who have mm -hmm. you know lived there, experienced it. So I'm just very, uh, just curious to get like you know a first person uh, experience, just to to try to relate to that. Because I feel like here in the states, especially, we're very much indoctrinated by Western culture. And the if you ever hear views by about what's happening other places, especially by the media, it's kind of biased, mm -hmm. and we don't we don't really receive a an accurate uh, depiction of what what happens elsewhere. Mm, I think you're right. Now I live here; it's been 13 years, and uh, it's hard for me to put things in perspective sometimes in terms of what's happening over there versus what we're reading on the media over here. Yes. And um, it certainly um, creates anxiety in terms of everything is horrible <laughs> and not safe and secure. But then when I talk to my family and friends and or when I go back for a visit and live there again, um, I don't have that paranoia anymore. Mm. So you're right about uh, not being able to understand the reality of things that are happening sure as they happen yeah i was curious about like the news outlets and the media outlets like when you're when you're back in in turkey for instance mm -hmm. is it similar to like the western media that kind of wants to keep people afraid of one another or and definitely the government <laughs> and the government has a connection to it i would imagine and they want their side of the story yeah definitely that that that's pretty much the case I see. Oh. It's we're all the same all yeah. around the world. <laughs> I guess that's that is a uh, ref not quite 
maybe not refreshing is not the right word, but at least to, to understand the patterns and yeah. just to see that everyone around the world's kind of, we're experience, we experience the world in the same way with the powers that be maybe wanting to control us or to keep mm. us afraid of one another. Exactly. I think it's our responsibility to do our homework and constantly look out for information that makes more sense and not just get feed into what it's been served on the menu yes yes and it's hard you know it's like we're all busy and um personally i'm not following the news because when i follow i get stressed yes and that's not an excuse but um if i'm relying on the information that's been spreaded especially on facebook it's uh, very oh. dangerous to yes follow. oh yeah yeah i sometimes feel the need to take myself off it because it gets really depressing and not and it's like granted that there's a lot of violence that's happening around mm -hmm. the world it's just sometimes the the rage that kind of comes out of it and not necessarily proactive rage mm -hmm. where it's uh people I think a lot of people are afraid and then they end up kind of tearing each other down um, or putting other people down especially folks who aren't really causing any of the harm mm, you're right no, it's a bad way of spreading bad energy. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, so, yeah, feel free to continue to talk about uh, your experience growing up or mm -hmm. anything. Um, you mentioned also just um, after, you know, I read the, the article about uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia, just in terms of with women's rights yeah. or lack thereof. Uh, um, I grew up in a country, it's very liberal, and the women's rights were... Um, granted uh, early in the Republic of Turkey in the mm -hmm. early 20s like they had the we had the right I, I wasn't born then but mm -hmm. <laughs> a woman had the uh, had the right to vote if I can speak English it's Friday it's coming oh. cutting close to weekend so my English skills are going down the hill oh. um, so uh, it, it's been a secular country. Lately, it's <laughs> going out of control a little bit. Government is on, on the religious side uh, going forward. But uh, still, we have a constitution. And, um, and the constitution says you can't mix religion with government yeah. issues. So it's been like that since the 20, uh, 1923. And... Um, and women and men, uh, we, we've been equal. Maybe culturally there's still um, some things that made me feel a bit oppressed in terms of on the scale of how a woman lives her life versus a man. Uh, a lame example of this would be when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to stay on the street all night long but uh, all my f guy friends, they could just keep playing after even it was dark. Yes. And uh, that made me feel, why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, um, yeah, sometimes, um, yeah, I, I, I never liked organized religions, and I don't mean disrespect to anybody, but my first experience about being curious to Islam was, oh, all my friends are going to the mosque on Friday, so I want to go join them. Yes. And back then we lived in a tiny village uh, in southern Turkey, the, in the um, city of Adana. 
and the name of the village was Kuchukchenar. It was the only village that had electricity, water, and one asphalt road. And the reason we moved there with my mother was uh, it was her first assignment as an art teacher. Government sent her to this really remote location to serve there for as her first assignment for three years. And then my mom and I, we moved to Adana, and um, it was a bit different culturally compared yes. to Istanbul, but it was so much fun to be able to come to class with my chickens and with my dog. <laughs> and um, the teacher would um, put me in charge and he would go and work at the farm. And since I was from Istanbul and I knew how to read and write, I was the sub teacher, which meant we would just go out and play all day long. So uh, long story short, um, most of my friends, they uh, practice uh, Islam and they went to mosque on Fridays. And uh, I was curious, I wanted to fit and I wanted to join the party. Yes. And I um, showed up after school on Friday and then um, realized that I needed to cover myself, <laughs> which my mom didn't tell me about. And, and I also sat on the wrong bench, which was um, dedicated for um, guys. Yes, yes. So then um, that day I realized I made a decision that, okay, it's just this feels discriminatory. Yes. Well, or a woman. Yeah, in, in Orthodox Judaism as well, there's the, I've been to, I think it was like a, w a wedding I was at where the, the women had to sit in the, the top of the balcony and then men were mm -hmm. uh, on the bottom, uh, like in the, on the, on the first floor. And so there was that, that separation as well, which th did not sit well with me. Yeah. So I, I guess I was, I was rebellious. I've yeah. been growing up, but I grew up as a Muslim and um, I've, I've studied the religion and learned the prayers in Arabic. But I am who I am still, and I yes. respect and love um, everybody. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <sighs> okay, what else I can tell you? Just ask me questions. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, in terms of, I guess, the current events and what's, what's going on, um, I mean, you you speak to your your family, and mm -hmm. you mentioned your sister as well in in Turkey. And I'm just curious about um, how folks have been responding in the last, I guess, in the last year in particular, just due to recent events. And because I know there's been a few like Islamic Islamophobic mm -hmm. events happening, events that's not the right word to use, but incidents that have incidents. been happening here <laughs> in the states. And I'm just curious as to what was happening abroad. I think it's very unfortunate. Um, I feel uh, that's very sad that <laughs> a particular mystery is playing towards um, what the whole uh, situation um, is yeah. going towards, like yeah. to create more discrimination between different sects of people. Yes. I didn't talk to my family in regards to how they felt. But I could see that how um, that would create more alienation. Oh, the Western world, you know, they don't want us. So it's it's a it's a very smart strategy. I feel that 
and we shouldn't fall under that game. Um, it's very sad. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a tendency with this sh- with this show where it there are other moments that feel a little bit uh, down, and like the goal is certainly not. I mean, I I feel like one goal in life is to bring people up. Mm-hmm. However, it's really difficult to still look at the world around us and to, I think it's, it's false to pretend that, Oh, everything's great all the time and everything's wonderful. However, trying to look for the, the optimistic things can be, can be very troublesome, especially when folks are, are constantly under, th- under threat or, or feeling unsafe. Yeah. How can we balance it somehow? Like being aware of everything that's happening and have some sort of a common sense and awareness yet have the energy to keep on going and somehow doing what we can to educate people or somehow do something about yes, it. I don't, yeah. I don't have the answer. I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes I completely shut down all my resources and just really focus on my life and then it that feels selfish at times yeah. it feels like i'm protected in a bubble uh. and you know it, this is my life and it feels so surreal the things that are happening around sure. the world that are happening outside of my bubble and how lucky i am yes yeah I feel but am i lucky i don't know it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean I, f- I feel similarly and then also on the on the flip side to like invest so much in what's going on and fighting the good fight and then not taking care of oneself or not working on you know things in my own life that i need to and i feel there is that uh one can go in either direction where it's uh it's all all about the struggle and not so much about self-care mm-hmm. and then how do we you know how do we fight for ourselves and for others at the same time and then also like acknowledging what you're saying about the bubble that's very real especially here i feel like the bubble is really enforced and there's like a lot of ways to, to remain distracted certainly just either like online i mean that's a big thing I'm, i myself am very guilty of that where Me oh too. oh i feel sad about something or angry or upset or worried and then it's either going to netflix or going to just cruise you know cruising that's maybe not the right word to use but just going online and just um not wanting to to think about things and i feel there's a lot of that just a lot of the, the these distractions uh especially for for younger folks uh the ones who maybe have more say possibly and more energy mm-hmm. and however I feel like a lot of folks are just so many people are struggling in varying degrees that it's really tricky. It's not like everyone has the opportunity, even if people were able to go to a protest, like young people have work and people have other commitments and it's, it's really tricky to get folks involved and invested since everyone is just struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. So the bigger question is how can we make, um, how can we spread awareness in terms of like keeping it real yet not feeling guilty yet yeah doing something about it maybe it's not in a form of protest but i guess education but i don't know how how um, the system is not set up to really do critical thinking yeah i mean the system <laughs> around <and> the world <laughs> yeah there's like a lot of institutions 
And I don't think the, the system really welcomes critical thinking because critical thinking would eventually lead to dismantling the system and perhaps creating it's a new system dangerous. or yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a the pink Floyd, the, another brick in the wall. Yeah. Like hey, teacher, leave those kids alone or yep. it's just indoctrination. Also, that's another question, I guess, in terms of just mm-hmm. growing up in, in schooling. And if there was the, this idea of, was it, was challenging, uh, teachings was that encouraged at all uh, teachings in terms of well um i went to a i went to a i went to multiple public schools in primary school and i think um turkish education system is based on french mm. um it's a uh, very um st- uh, strict in terms of uh it's very traditional teacher has all the power mm-hmm. and um the students and the uh, parents there is this expression the parents tell to the teacher i don't know if i can translate it but i'm going to attempt they say the first day of school here is my child uh we say etisenin kemi benim uh eti benim kemi senin it means i own the flesh you own the bones wow <laughs> meaning you can do whatever methods to get the education drilled inside to my child they, that's not a literal translation yeah, yeah. but it's along the lines of how um strict it is <laughs> that would give you an idea and i, I also went to private school in middle school and high school uh, because I wanted to learn English and um, funny when I came to this country I couldn't open my mouth and make a word after studying English all these years Um, but education it's um, yeah it's it's cited you know it's we're we're, they they drill in in Turkey, uh, we probably have higher level of education in middle and high school mm-hmm. in terms of uh, mathematics, physics, and chemistry. I think what I've observed and learned here is that the level of technical information we get and gain is a college level compared to California. Yeah. Uh, but th- that doesn't mean that... <laughs> We learn to be critical thinkers or question the status quo. Yeah. Because the teacher has your bones. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I sometimes uh, issue want to issue a, a trigger warning before the show because it does deal with like heavy topics and can feel a little bit heavy for folks. And then also just remembering to breathe. Uh, during during all this, so thank yeah. you for reminding reminding me of that. Thank you for holding space. It's heavy, but it's real, and uh, I appreciate it. Oh, that's why I love to to do this show is to is to bring folks like you in and just to have you know have these conversations and just to learn. Certainly. So another question I had was just for like LGBTQ folks mm-hmm. in, in Turkey and. Uh, well, I'm just curious, like friends that you have back home, um, what their experiences that you are aware of, if you care to share about that. 
This is a great question. And to be honest, before I moved here, I never thought about LGBT community because um, I think only now, lately, for the last few years, there is representation. But before that, when I was growing up, um, I don't think it was acceptable and people were hiding their, um, uh, what is the word, they were hiding their like identity. Identity, yes, yeah. thank you. And um, sadly, the only people who were open about it with their identity and with their appearance would be the people who work at the nightclubs mm -hmm. and that was their profession. Yes. Which is very sad that that could be the only profession they could do. Yes. So after I moved to California, it was like... Um, eye-opening oh wow yeah, I never because I never thought about it uh, and now I'm looking back thinking about some of my friends and thinking oh they were probably you know having so much struggle to hide um, now that I think about some of the people that uh, they weren't expressing their identity openly but I could remember some hints of it but I never put the two and two together or I never thought about it because it's, it wasn't something that we talked openly, uh, acknowledged. Yeah, sex is also another top topic that you never talk about. Yeah, well, it's kind of similar <laughs> to uh, like America. It's like sex sells here, but it's not really discussed. Like there's a lot of pushback against sex education here. And like even in, in movies and in TV, like in, in England, for instance, you can see like nudity mm -hmm. and sex on TV. However, here violence seems to be, you know, pretty much given the go ahead, yet nudity and sexuality is somehow deemed inappropriate when a lot of folks feel like it should be the other way around where uh, sex is, is much more n natural at least or mm -hmm. certainly pleasant than, uh, <laughs> than violence and the fact that you have to shield children from that as opposed to working to shield children from, from violence seems very uh, backwards. Yeah, we don't even have sex education. And in fact, oh. I have this memory, just remembered that um, <laughs> this is too much information, by the Please. way. Please. <laughs> <laughs> we welcome that here. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's, it's very funny, but it was very scary at the time when it happened. Okay. Um, I was in high school, and um, I brought tampons to school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And you would think, okay, what's the big deal? In Turkey, um, you're not expected to use tampons if you're a virgin, because people believe it'll damage your uh, virginity. What is that? Um, anyways, you, uh, you wouldn't be virgin anymore because yeah. it'll destroy that part of your body. The hymen? Hymen, yes, yeah. thank you. And then... We can go into more horror details about how important hymen is, but that's another story. <laughs> Anyways, and um, uh, so uh, there was some uh, random check. How do you call it when teachers, like, in the middle of the class, they walk in and they say they will do a check, um, just checks yeah. everyone's 
uh, bags, yeah. not for tampons, but usually for drugs and cigarettes and alcohol. So it was one of those days in school, and then they found my tampons, and it was so scary. And uh, I thought I was going to be expelled from school because then, <sighs> is if you weren't virgin, they would kick you out of school, and it's your that's the end of your education wow. like period. It's like you're done. So uh, I guess this is an example of yeah. discrimination being a woman and yeah. So, oh, just inter- so a question. So you're kicked out if you were a vir- if you were not a virgin, and you're was it the same for men? If the, if men were not virgins, were they also kicked out? No, they wouldn't, and there is no way of um, proving that they're they are or they're not. But the uh. mighty hymen is <laughs> to prove that <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah so then um it was uh, first of all it was very embarrassing second of all uh you could imagine the panic i went through sure and um um i wasn't virgin i i i um and so i was so scared and then I found the teacher after the in the break time and then i was crying and i i convinced her that uh, the fanny bag that she found the tampon <laughs> belonged yeah. to my mother, which was true story. Yes. And I didn't. I I said I didn't know it was hers, and I just <sighs> brought the bag with me. I didn't look inside, and and then I was so scared that they will ask um, for me to bring a report from the hospital to prove that I am. Virgin. So that that I guess we go through so many traumatizing events growing up. Yeah, it's like being part of free, (laughs) and I don't think I haven't you know processed those things as trauma or uh, abuse when I was in that environment. Yes. Yeah, I guess it was a bit of a trauma. Well, I made it. I went to college after, and I went to another college here in San Jose State. So yeah, yay! Wow, yeah. Hyman versus education. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Ah, oh. that's. I mean, that also just brings up the idea of like folks having to to step away from the truth, in order. You know, it's like pe- people being forced to lie about oh, what's yeah. what's actually going on and how damaging that can be. And that can also go back to the whole sexuality question too, where people are kind of forced to not, you know, reveal themselves. Not that everyone has to be, you know, super outgoing about who they are, but the idea that one has to kind of hide their identity or hide their truth or mm-hmm. and how hurtful that can be. Yeah, I, I I can't even imagine being hiding is hurtful, also probably revealing is hard yes. hard too. Yeah. Mm. So I feel for everyone who has to hide, including my hymen. <laughs> uh, well, let's take a, on that note. Let's take a little bit of a break, and then we'll be back more with uh, with Osla. <laughs> when this old world starts getting me down, and people are just too much for me to face. I climb way up to the top of the stairs And all my cares just drift right into space On the roof is peaceful as 
fresh and sweet on the roof. I get away from the hustling crowd and all that rat race noise down in the We're back here with Aza. That was The Drifters with Up on the Roof. Probably one of my favorite songs of all time. Maybe top 10. I think that's easy to say. So we were getting back into the conversation. We were talking about, uh, Aza mentioned TMI, and we were talking about small talk. And I was saying I cannot make small talk to save my life. Well, I mean, I can. I just really despise it. And it's really difficult for me to not talk about what I'm feeling or to hide what I'm feeling. Um, I feel the same. Uh, When I first came here, I was very surprised when people at the grocery registry asked how I was, how I was doing, you know, how are you doing? And I took it as a real question and would say, oh, I feel horrible. I miss my mother. (laughs) You know, I can't find the cheese I love in your store. And then I realized quickly that (laughs) it was a way of saying hello. And it wasn't a real how are you question <laughs> yeah i think i think part of it is like there is that urge for people to connect and then uh but just, not too much yeah not too much and then also there's like a kind of a false like representation of it like on the surface everyone you know we, we, we pretend everything's okay um but then there's that part of us or like this is just in general that doesn't really want to know what, what's going on doesn't really want to focus in on the, the troubling things or the upsetting things either about ourselves or about our lives yeah tell me about it a little bit but not too much people are almost like avoiding to know the truth about what everyone is going through because yeah. they don't have the capacity to hold place yes that's a that's a great way of putting it and i think it's in terms of like also with with the, with the news like just with what goes on and a lot of people choose not to listen to what other people are saying especially when people speak up Mm -hmm. i think it makes some folks uncomfortable and then also just the varying degrees of oppression that exist um folks don't to actually acknowledge what people go through and the traumas that people experience and the microaggressions that people experience on a daily basis to actually acknowledge that is is heartbreaking and i think it 
I think I can only speak for myself, but a lot of times it, I feel like helpless in a mm-hmm. way where it's like, there's so it's people where people don't feel safe to leave their homes, for instance, as one thing and people being harassed or just even not feeling safe, like at work or at school or at home. And, uh, that to know that this is a common thing then and of course a lot of us want to just kind of wave a magic wand and and solve it and i think to not be able to do that it's it's hard to to i guess to take it on and and to you know what do we what do we do with this and how do we combat the societal ills that's one way of putting it uh Oh, <laughs> there really is so heavy. much to work on. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and then there's, of course, you know, all you can do is you can only change your own behavior and that's it. So, yeah, lately I've been focusing on um, myself because I figured there's so much atrocity and negativity. Oh, it makes me feel um, helpless. So I, I've, I've started um, doing Reiki daily. Oh, yeah. I just completed my... Uh, level two Reiki session a few days ago and one of my intentions was to heal myself to heal the world if I am a better more um, centered aware person somehow maybe I can influence my community in a way or maybe the energy I'm um, waving it around me could hopefully maybe touch some others yes yeah, absolutely. I think Reiki is really powerful. I have a friend who's a Reiki practitioner here in San Francisco, Christopher Teas, and I think it's an incredible tool. And I feel, I can't even express exactly how I feel after I get a treatment, but it just really changes. And the idea that people can give that to one another is, is really it's wonderful. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's absolutely. Gift. So absolutely. let me know when you need it next time. Oh, sure. <laughs> I feel like it's a constant. <laughs> Absolutely. So you'd mentioned that you had another story that you wanted to discuss. About. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was telling you, I don't want to paint a picture of oh, how horrible where I come from. No, it was beautiful. Um, I'm so glad I grew up in Turkey. And not I, this is not criticism, but I would shoot myself if I grew up in a mall. <laughs> it's just a different way of, you know, experiencing youth, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, now we have malls all over the place in Istanbul, and that's very sad. Oh. That's another story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I have this funny and scary another story that um, one day I was um, having a beautiful day with my dates. We were sitting by the rocks close to the water, the Mediterranean, not the Mediterranean, the Bosporus, the beautiful Bosporus. And uh, we were trying to just um, just hang out and just be in the moment enjoying the sun and the water and uh, he was trying to teach me how to whistle and <laughs> that looked like from a distance that we were kissing but we were not we were just looking at each other and making a whistle I, I still can't whis- uh, whistle because of that day um, and uh, as that that was as it was happening, the police arrived and arrested us <laughs> for um, being uh, what do you call in English? PAD, PD, PDA, oh, PDA, PDA. <laughs> for PDA, and it was so scary because they were yelling and insulting and um, very rude and 
I was 16 years old. I was so scared that they were going to call my parents and tell things that weren't true. And um, and then after three hours of stupid interrogation and humiliation, I was let go. And my date was still in there. And um, he eventually went out too. But um, they asked for my telephone number, which I gave because I was afraid um, if I lied, it would be it would make things even worse but I never thought that they will call my home and tell my mother that I was uh, I was doing prostitution on the street that was so infuriating when I went back home my mom opened the door she looked at me in the eyes and <laughs> she said go get me another pack of cigarettes and then I went to the supermarket and came back with another pack of camel. And then she asked how my day was. I said, oh, great. I met with friends. I was in downtown Kadıköy. And then she told me what happened. And it was so um, insulting in a way, not from her, but I, I felt very betrayed and... Um, I didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And that was the day probably my mom lost a little bit of trust because she was afraid. Yes. At the end of the day, she believed my story, but um, things got a little more controlling and more curfews after that day. So, yeah, it's because of two assholes decided to put us in jail for a couple of hours and then call my parents uh. to tell I was prostituting. Hmm. So things like that. <laughs> it was. It's another um, funny, sad story. Yeah. So, so then PDA, public displays of affection, is that's like illegal? Is that an actual like crime? Or was it a crime? No, I don't think it is um, uh, officially. Mm -hmm. But um, that day I learned that it, like, depending on who's around, you could be in trouble. But they couldn't hold me because, you know, it, it's against the law. I don't know what, what the law is today, but yes. um, then it wasn't in the law that you can arrest people. Um, so that... Uh, probably today it's even more um, looking at where the government is taking us. Yeah. So Oof. enjoy PDA San Francisco Jeez. people. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that sounds really scary. Yeah. And imagine what it's like for folks who actually are, you know, sex workers to, you know, when that's, if that's their, their livelihood to, and then here in the States too, you know, folks who can be arrested and they're just doing this kind of work to support themselves mm -hmm. and what happens when your work is, is criminalized to live in that kind of society. I think that's just terrifying. And yeah, you, you know, just if you're just showing affection from 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 one person to another, it's just honestly, I see less PDA here in this country than I see in my own country. People, mm. we, we touch more, we, we, we make more uh, physical contact. Yes. We kiss each other a lot. Yes. And, um, but it's, it's like, really? Like, I, 
<laughs> Speaking of sex workers, I have another story if yeah. you would like please. to hear. Please, <laughs> yeah, please, please. <laughs> so, um, uh, I have, uh, as you can see, a lighter skin, blue eyes and uh, fair, fair hair, uh, which is a bit, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit lighter looking compared to the Middle Eastern um, population. Mm-hmm. In Turkey, so people think I'm I'm from either Eastern Europe or from Russia. Why my looks? Um, my uh, my father's grandmother was from Bulgaria, and my mother's father's family uh, were from Greece. Mm-hmm. So I have a mix of all these genes that make me a bit more blonder than the rest. So um, I uh, wanted to surprise my mother one day um, got on the plane from San Francisco yes went to Istanbul and I left my keys home <laughs> little I knew that she wasn't I never thought about it it was a big surprise and I thought she would be home but yes. she wasn't <laughs> and I thought okay um, she would eventually come home so luckily it was in the afternoon still early you know 2 p.m. whatever And so I, I had my, um, it was winter time, so I had a winter jacket on and a hat and yes. uh, my little luggage. So I thought, oh, I'll just go to the tea house. We have tea houses all every corner. You just go sit there, drink tea, eat yummy toasts or smith. <laughs> so I was actually excited. Oh, I'm just going to go there. And then on my way to the tea house cafe, the police stopped me and asked to see my ID because uh-huh. they were convinced that I was a uh, sex worker from uh-huh. Russia. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? This is illegal. You can't just stop me yeah. because I, I I look like this. And, um, and they were so rude. And um, I got so angry and I showed them my ID And they were so surprised and so embarrassed. Mm. And I was so mad that because of the way I look yeah. a bit different. And it's like, is it illegal to have blue eyes? <laughs> <sighs> that reminds me of a, a story that came out of like Iowa recently. There was a, a, a black trans woman who w- went to, she was checked into a hotel and the clerk called the cops on her. And so she called the cl- one of the clerks called nine one one, and described her in a really, just derogatory way. Like called said that she was a man wearing a dress, and sent the cops over to arrest her. Mm. And she was in town for a funeral, for instance. It, I mean, it didn't matter what whatever she was doing there, but they assumed that they assumed she was male. They assumed that she was a sex worker, and she she was, and it's like something that you know people are policed based on how they look. And I don't have anything else to add to that. That was just one more story that was going to maybe perhaps mention today. But it seems like it's common around the world that... Uh, yeah, it's the, the way you look um, defines how the people in power will proceed. Yes. Yeah. Ah. <sighs> 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 uh. Yeah, ah, oh. it's so. I mean, I don't have anything to 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 add to that other than just the utter 
size of, of frustration that it's like a constant thing. And then to know that that's happening around the world. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm I'm still very proud of my stories in terms of it, it's so infuriating at times and scary and traumatizing as yeah. they are. Still, it's some somehow it's just making me who I am today. Sure. A hot-headed Turk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Goodness gracious. So I guess another thing that we could talk about perhaps mm-hmm. would be protests and uh, protests that happened here. I mean, there's definitely protests that happened here in the States, but it seems like... Oh, yeah, there's there, a quite a bit of a difference. Yeah, yeah. So something you could you could speak a little bit about that. Sure. Um, we had a lot of protests going on uh, during the Gezi Park events a couple of years ago mm-hmm. when uh, the um, president wanted to convert this park, which is like the... Um, uh, which is which is the park in the middle of Istanbul. Istanbul is a uh, 17 plus million people, lots of traffic, lots of buildings. Mm-hmm. So this park was in the middle of the city that was the only green space. Yeah. So the the government wanted to convert it to a, a luxury hotel and malls, and then there were big protests, and um, and those protests ended really bloody because um. Uh, that's just one example and it's very extreme but whenever there is a protest usually uh, and every May 1st it's uh, oh, for May Day May Day yeah. uh, it's very big in Turkey uh, people die and um, uh, peaceful protests just turn into um, bloody um, struggle because yes. the police don't take it very lightly and they just um shut they want to shut it down yeah i was curious cuz i know here sometimes there's a lot of uh protests that begin peacefully and sometimes there there will be infiltrators there will be people from the police who will maybe instigate and start something violent mm. um which then will provide a reason for the police to then respond violently towards the protesters so there'll be someone in the crowd who's not actually part of the peaceful protest and i'm curious if that maybe the same thing is happening in turkey where there, there will be someone who will infiltrate mm, that's quite possible i don't yeah. know yeah Growing up, I wasn't allowed to go uh, participate to May Day, and it's it's a very, um, very proudful thing to do. Mm-hmm. If you participated, it was like, oh yeah, I feel proud because I was I was part of May Day. Um, but my parents didn't let me do that. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess as I aged, I became a bit less less political and then so i don't know the answer sure. um, it's quite possible that that's the case yeah yeah and so your parents are both artists yes yes that's that's pretty awesome <laughs> thank you <laughs> um yeah my mom and my dad uh met in art school in the academy of arts in Mimar sinan and um ta-da it <laughs> happened <laughs> my dad was my um my mom's professor and she was a freshman when she had me (laughs) (laughs) and then they shipped me to my grandparents because they were still in school oh yeah uh, um, yeah my dad lives part-time in Denmark and uh, he has exhibitions um, several exhibitions a year in Turkey and he's more established and published and my mom is a 
amazing artist um, but she falls under the category of starving artist and yes. she's not uh, uh, discovered by the media of the authority of arts that society in Turkey but I'm sure one day when her work is surfaced yeah uh, I love her work both right. of their work <clears throat> and I w- studied art because I didn't have any other example <laughs> to <laughs> go to school for actually I wanted to be a veterinarian oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and both of my parents were uh, no are you gonna just help cows deliver <laughs> babies <laughs> and I never thought about it that way but I'm, I'm like that would be very noble why not yeah uh, but I was discouraged and they thought uh, being a pharmacist would be a more suitable job for okay. a woman in Turkey because um, they would help me open my own pharmacy and then it would be very stable as a woman that was the phrase uh-huh. <laughs> and um, of course I rebelled and I went to art school yes <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I did some paintings and uh, but uh, I think uh, lately I found my um, passion in uh, improvisation mm-hmm another form of art yes yeah i've been very lucky to express myself on stage not with paintings and pictures but with my instrument my body yeah your voice and my voice yeah (laughs) yeah so i'm curious about i guess theater in in turkey like what a theater not necessarily the theater scene but what uh Yeah, I guess maybe maybe the scene or just what's available, like what kind of theater productions happen um, out there. Yeah, we 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 have uh, big uh, theaters, <coughs> and um, just like here. Yeah. And uh, the, the when I go back for New Year's this year, this first time I'll be meeting with the folks uh, from the improvisation side. Oh, very cool. So I'm very excited. I heard there are a few, uh, communities, one for expats, uh, mm-hmm. improv in English and, uh, one for Turkish people. And I'm excited to explore and meet them and, um, hopefully play with them. Oh, excellent. Yes. That sounds very <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Improvising in Turkish. Yeah. I'm so scared. I never improvised in Turkish. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, a little bit, Yeah. but not, too much <laughs> well your your improv duo uh, euro trash yes you uh, <laughs> you and andrea perform hi andrea <laughs> <laughs> you perform in respective languages yes yeah. uh, lately we were in ireland where we get to uh see people from all over europe playing with magical magical uh connections they were so expressive and emotional and connected and playful It was a whole new level of um, expansion of my improv world, where we felt more fit in terms of, oh, we can butcher English. Oh, we don't have even have to use English. <laughs> <sighs> cool. Yeah. <sighs> Ooh. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so let's see. It's about 1.45, so I think it's about time that we'll, we should uh, wrap up here. So if there's anything else you'd like to either pl- any shows you'd like to plug or anything else you'd like to oh, leave yes. the listeners with. Oh, this Sunday in the American Theater, American Improv Theater in San Jose, 
we the occidentalists uh have a show at 7 p.m i believe okay and um that's the only thing i would like to invite people to come over very cool thank you awesome well thank you so much for being on the show thank you for inviting me yeah of course i'm glad we're able to have this discussion yes and uh so um i'll be off for probably the next few weeks or so but i'll be back uh at some point we'll let the i'll be updating the the facebook page with some more information about that so i want to say thanks everybody for listening and thanks again to osla for coming on the show uh stay tuned because next will be global val with women's magazine followed by common thread collective at 3 p.m you're listening to mutiny radio uh we have shows here every day of the week of all sorts and uh, we'll be up on iTunes. The weekly review will be up on iTunes shortly, so you'll be able to listen to previous episodes on there as well. So everyone, have a lovely week. And I'm going to be ending the song. I'm not a huge fan of Christmas. I'm not a huge fan of Christmas songs. However, one song that's been in my mind a little bit has been uh, John Lennon's song, uh, Happy Xmas, War is Over. Mostly for the second part, War is Over. And with the idea, war is over if you want it. So just wanted to repeat that idea. War is over if you want it. Everybody have a great week. And we'll be back uh, sometime in the near future. Happy Christmas, Kyoko. Happy Christmas, Jody. So this is Christmas. And what have you done? Another year over. And so this is Christmas I hope you have fun The near and the dear ones The old and the young A very merry Christmas And a happy
differentiate himself in any Tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea. PM, 21st in Florida. It's mutinyradio.fm. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in, turn on, every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m., House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. Listen in, Fridays at noon, Mutiny Radio. Roman's also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon, on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman, 
host of government-sponsored program Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. Sit, relax, listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold balance sets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turnip and beet and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB- KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Looking to invest in the future of your community? MutinyRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Classroom Institute right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.mutinyradio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at muniradio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alta California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alta California Botanicals doesn't sell directly to the public, of course, but if you visit their website at Alta, A-L-T-A, CaliforniaBotanicals.com and enter your zip code, they'll give you a list of dispensaries near you that keep their tinctures in stock. Now here's a tip for the holiday season. Keep a couple of extra bottles of the stress formula handy. It'll help maintain your cool amongst all that shopping madness. I'm Chuck Weiss for AltaCaliforniaBotanicals.com. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to expand your current business? Women's Initiative of San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact 
641-3460 or visit womensinitiative.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. For nearly 100 years, Planned Parenthood has promoted a common-sense approach to women's health and well-being based on respect for each individual's rights to make informed, independent decisions about health, sex, and family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The Berkeley Free Clinic was founded in 1969 as a street medicine clinic, but quickly found a permanent home in the Berkeley community. 